Hello, and welcome to the Short Gun Sportsman, a podcast about handgun hunting brought to you by Handgun Hunters International. My name is Ryan Hoover, and I'm your host. I believe handgun hunting is the most rewarding way to hunt, and it's something I want to share with as many people as I can. If you are at all interested in getting your own game meat, I want to challenge you to a way of hunting that is good for both your spirit and your body, so you can become the confident, self-reliant person you were meant to be. Today's podcast is with Randy Miller. Randy Miller exemplifies the kind of handgun hunter I want to know. Randy is such an awesome guy. He's a founding member of HHI. He's a good friend. He's a very accomplished hunter. He's modest, but an incredible revolver shot and uh, just an all-around good guy. On top of that, he's the proprietor of Backcountry Leather Goods, where he makes incredible, innovative, and really well-made holsters, and he just loves fitting his holsters to people's needs. And I know you're going to enjoy this episode. However, before we start, I want to tell you guys real quickly, this year, 2024, is going to be a good one. We're going to have some awesome giveaways. Just in December, we gave away an SSK50 frame to one of our uh, HHI members that it was entered to win. And so if you join HHI, you will be automatically entered to win. On top of that, you get early access to this podcast, and we're looking at introducing more and more things to our membership. You get access to our incredible forum. And I always say that, and people, some people tell me, forums are dead, blah, 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 but that's not true. You know why? Because we run our forum on one rule, and that is all you're required to be is polite. So you get to escape the regular internet forum craziness and know that you're going to come to a place that is kind of like the old show cheers. You know, everybody knows your name questions asked. Everybody is friendly. Everybody shares information just so freely. It's an awesome place. It's the best hunting forum on the internet. And I know I'm biased, but I would say that anyway. Okay. Anyway, thanks for listening to that. Now let's get on to my interview with Randy Miller. Randy Miller, thanks so much for doing the podcast with me today. Hey, it's great to be here. Great to see. You. Great to talk to you again, Ryan. Yeah, man. So I've I say this to everybody, but you are probably the person that I hold up as like who I want the handgun hunting community to include. You're, I mean, if I can brag on you to you, you've always been selfless. You've always been helpful. You've always put your money where your mouth is. You're always trying to come up with new innovative products for the handgun hunting community. And so I thought it would be a good idea to immortalize your voice through this podcast. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. That's, uh, that's nice of you. Uh, I know that we did one, I guess it was last year with the four of us at your hunting camp. And so people are probably already familiar with who you are, but, uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. I think you said you've been you've been hunting for a couple decades, handgun hunting for a couple decades now. Is that correct? That's correct. I started in I think my first dedicated handgun hunting season was uh, was 2000. Okay. All right, man. That's close to 25 years now. Then. Yeah. Now that you mentioned it, you're right. Okay. So uh, one question that I always ask everybody that I want to get you you know talk to you about is. The first handgun hill handgun hunt you ever did when you when you were successful, walk me through kind of your emotional state and how you felt in your head uh, after after you were successful after setting the goal and becoming ses- successful at handgun hunting. Okay, yeah, I I remember that day very well. It was actually back here in Texas, and um, I had um, I had worked with a guy that just 
talked about handgun hunting as well, like we do today, but I've never heard anybody be so passionate about about something like that. And so my first um, gun was a Thompson Center Encore, a 12-inch barrel in 44 mag, and it was scoped, um, got proficient with it, and I had a lease here in Central Texas, um, and I was I was really primarily a bow hunter at that point. And so I just sat up in one of my bow stands, and, and I, if I'm not mistaken, my, my shot distance was about 35 yards, and um, I, it wasn't the first time out that I, that I scored, but the first time I scored was a, uh, a nice-sized doe. She came in about 35 yards or you know, right, around, right around there. Um, it, what I remember is I remember it taking forever to, one, get her, get the doe in the right position, Two, uh, for me to get the gun up and, and cocked without spooking her. And then uh, three, probably more than anything, was to calm my nerves enough to, um, to fire the shot. It was, um, thankfully, it was a bang flop. She hit the ground. It made a, a great shot on her. It was very close, obviously, 35 yards. And um, I, I remember never feeling anything like that prior to that in my hunting uh, career up to and including um, take, taking animals with uh, longbows and recurves that I had built myself and um, pretty amazing experience and, and from that day forward I've um, literally been dedicated handgun hunter and, and almost exclusive handgun for 20 like you said almost 25 years now and went up the spectrum um, started with that Encore in 44 and got into the bottleneck cartridges and um, went up the scale there and then kind of went back down. And uh, this, the day that I shot a deer at about 200 yards with um, with um, a handgun, which was a 708, uh, was the day that, and I have, you know, I enjoyed that quite a bit, but um, that was the day that I uh, decided to move to revolvers. And that was a few years into my handgun hunting. And uh, I will tell you, once I, once I went to revolvers, I've never looked back, and I've just been addicted to to uh, revolvers, primarily single action, but I've had double actions over the years, but um, just been obsessed with hunting uh, with revolvers ever since. That is, that's a statement. You got more joy out of killing a doe than with a, a recurve bow you made yourself. That's correct. Man. I built um, for quite a years. I built uh, really long bows and a few recurves um, because I was just I was a pretty dedicated traditional bow hunter, and uh, I never I'd never felt uh, never felt anything like pulling the trigger on an animal with a handgun. Okay, well, I want to get to that back to that philosophically in just a sec. But did you grow up hunting? Well, here's what's interesting. Um, not really. Um, I Well, I, I say not really. My dad did not hunt. My mom's side of the family did, but my dad did not. He never really took to it. But uh, my again, my mom's side of the family had uh, they were farmers um, by trade. And so we had access to farmland. But when I was about 11, um, some friends of my dad talked him into trying dove hunting. So he bought each of us a shotgun. I was 11 at the time. And he tried it once or twice and and just didn't take to it and, and really was not, not interested in hunting uh, in the 
from the day I saw that first dove uh, fall out of the sky, I I was addicted to to hunting ever since. My first um, whitetail kill was actually I still have the gun was a uh, a pre sixty four model ninety four. Is that right? Or am I getting that backwards? I think yeah. it's pre sixty four model ninety four Winchester thirty thirty uh, with iron sights. Mm-hmm. And um, that too was a doe, and I did that at 15 years old. And um, I will tell you, since you know, a lot of firsts that made a huge impact. Seeing that first dove fall, and then seeing that first deer fall, and uh, I've just been, you know, I've been a hunter ever since then. That's awesome. I'm I'm kind of similar. My dad, who was an awesome shot, was not a hunter. Is not a hunter. My mom, not a hunter. I got introduced to it by a guy in our church and just kind of took to it myself because I was always fascinated and drawn to the idea that I could get my own food. You know, I've always liked the whole self-sufficiency thing. But the idea, I I, want to kind of just, because I think you'd be a good guy to talk to about this, the idea that I've never been able to, I've never heard it articulated like precisely because I don't know if you, I don't know if anyone can. But what do you think it is about handguns specifically? Because your story uh, is not unique to our, I mean, it's your story, obviously, so it is unique, but it's that sentiment is very similar to myself, to a lot of other people we've had on the podcast, to a lot of members that I've talked to. There's just something about it. What do you, philosophically, what do you think it is? Oh, gosh. You know, I've, I've actually sat and wondered this myself. Uh, because I, I, I mean, I was a, I was a hardcore uh, bubble hunter, and I've, I've often wondered, wondered why um, handgun hunting just hit my soul so much harder than even uh, archery. And I don't know the answer to it. I think, for me anyway, my experience in, in going back to the days prior to um, traditional bows, um, and even with traditional bows, is, I think is the same thing. To me, it was always harder to make a handgun shot, and I think it's the, you know, certainly with a rifle having the connection to uh, two points or, you know, with the shoulder as a rest, um, I think had a lot to do with it. But even with a bow, you know, you really, I think you're anchored very well uh, with both both arms, or at least I always felt that way. And with a handgun, I just it it seems like the very slightest mistake um, turned into a or uh, the very slightest, um, uh, you know, wobble, if you will, or, or shake just turned into, could potentially turn into the largest mistake possible downrange. It didn't take much. And, and I think for me, it's always been more of a challenge to pull off um, a shot with a handgun than it was with anything else. And, and I, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that is why I like it so much or the fact that I love simplicity and I'm always looking for ways to simplify what I'm carrying. So I, I love the fact of having nothing but um, a single uh, gun attached to me and, and nothing else and being able just to walk, you know, in the woods completely hands-free. Um, I don't know. I think it's a combination of a lot of things. You said something that I, I hadn't ever thought of because, you know, we are kind of as far as hunting fanaticism, I guess you'd say, and, and style, we are connected to bow hunters. You know, we, we really like the, uh, the fact that we're hunters, you know, that we're not just always shooters. And, but I never really thought about the fact that, and I have done very limited bow hunting 
very limited bow shooting and it's been a long time, but I do know like when you pull a bow, you do have, it does feel more supported in the tension, right? Like the, the tension of the bow, your limbs, your limbs, not the bow's limbs, but your arms feel more supported and steady um, when you have your hand back on your cheek, you know, looking through the sights. So I've never, or I mean, not in your case, you were doing traditional, but a lot of um, that kind of thing. I guess you're right. I never thought about that, that even that a handgun is even more unsupported than a bow. Yeah. And it's certainly, um, you know, with, with the compound being able to, you having two points to, to stabilize yourself. Mm -hmm. But, um, I think, and, and for me, and I think a lot of people would call me crazy. I always felt like hunting with a longbow or recurve versus a compound was easier. And that was because you didn't have, I mean, when you pulled it back, you, you were not, you're not really anchoring for long. You, typically, when you draw the bow, you are releasing pretty quick, and 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 so, you know, I I just always felt more stable in in or felt like making an archery shot uh, was always easier for me, uh, because with a handgun, as you know, you can get do everything right, get the hammer back, and you can sit there for a while, and that's when uh, that's when the fever creeps in. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Because with recurve, like you're talking about traditional archery, it's not the same. Just like hold it back, hold it back, hold it back. It's it's pretty much when you're ready, you're almost just drawing and and shooting, right? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, tell me what you think about this. I so I've never been a bow hunter because I've never really been into bows. You know, I always thought I was always into guns, and I always was fascinated by their ability to be objects, both of high art and high engineering. You know, it takes a lot of, to get the, to where we are now with the modern gun has been just a feat of some amazing people. And some of the things that we can buy off the dealer shelves now are more precise, more finely tuned, and also better looking than, it, it, you know, people might argue with me about this than at any time, you know, like as far as off the shelf stuff is, con is concerned. So sure. You know, from my from my perspective, it's always just been like I've been drawn to this piece of equipment that I can also fulfill my uh, desire to to get food from the wild with. But you, obviously, you were drawn to the bow because you were heck, you were building them. Um, so how how was it as far as the the uh, I'm trying not to get too, too esoteric here, but like your your draw away from bows into handguns if you follow me yeah no i i do and honestly when i picked up the handgun i still i mean i was uh from a general season or a rifle season perspective uh talking texas terms here uh i was 100 percent dedicated to the handgun however i still would archery hunt during the archery season but what flipped in me was um it was only for the archery season and then once the general season opened i immediately put the bow down and and i mean rarely picked it back up in the gun season it just i think <clears throat> you know something you said i think hit home with me as well is that you've always liked guns you weren't you were never really drawn to bows i was drawn to bows but i think my you know, growing up around guns, um, at least after I was about 11 or, or 12, um, there's something about just a gun itself. And uh, I've always enjoyed that that 
that perspective of it. And uh, but once archery season was over, uh, that was it. I put the bow down, and I was I, I just couldn't wait to. In fact, in many many seasons, I carried a handgun legally, but I carried a handgun during uh, archery season. And I was always I always said I'm out here. I'm kind of really hog hunting. I'm carrying a bow in case I get an opportunity at a deer. But it was still legal for me to kill a hog during archery season with a handgun, and that's what I always was 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 you know kind of preferred to do if if uh, the opportunity um, came up. So, when, do you bow hunt at all anymore? Very rarely, and I will tell you uh, what what changed in that is um, a few years back I started going out west um, every year chasing elk or mule deer or antelope uh, with a handgun and that has always been kind of a mid-October hunt, uh, depending on where we draw or what we do. And because that happens in October, which is right in the middle of archery season here in Texas, mm-hmm. um, my, I mean, my entire year is, is uh, my thoughts are consumed with uh, that Western hunt, and that typically kicks everything off. And because of that, because it's with a handgun, uh, I just have – I wouldn't say completely lost interest in archery. It just has taken um, a back burner to everything else. Gotcha. So rolling that into the the idea of handgun hunting as a sport, you know, one of, one of the things that I'm always trying to do, obviously running an organization that has to do with handgun hunting um, and following up on people who are just getting into it, people who have been into it for a while, people who are coming back to it. And I have always had this sense, and our friend Heath, Tyler, and I have always, we've talked about this, like, there has got to be this, I just believe it, that there's this subset of people out there that are just waiting to discover handgun hunting. And here's why I think that. Because for me, and I don't, I used to kind of feel weird saying this, but I don't anymore, handgun hunting made me a better person. Because I, I, I discovered it, or excuse me, I didn't discover it. I, I committed myself to it at a time in my life where I was having a rough time and found that by overcoming the challenge to get good enough to be successful with a handgun in the field, I thought, you know, and people have heard me say this, I thought, what else could I overcome? And it really boosted my confidence and it, it helped me in other areas of my life. Now, I don't know for how much that's true for everybody else, but I just feel like there are experiences like that that I hear about all the time. And one of the reasons that I'm always seeking stories of people who have been doing this for a long time and their I guess their genesis and handgun hunting and how they felt about it is because I want to be able to kind of encapsulate that and be able to show people what handgun hunting has to offer. And I will say like, for me, my goal is to support and grow the handgun hunting community, whether or not people join HHI. So this is not just a a self-promotion thing. This is like, I want to crack this puzzle. So what are your, what are your thoughts about it? Yeah. I mean, I, um, I definitely can understand from your perspective because uh, it is a very difficult um, – it's a difficult thing to, to accomplish. Uh, I personally have never really thought of it in that regard in terms of um, overcoming things or accomplishing things I've never done before. Uh, but from a sport perspective, and, and uh, I personally think most people probably would lean more towards the sports side of it, um, I think – I think the challenge of it is what is, is such a huge thrill. 
And I think so many people, they probably don't realize, and I, I believe we actually talked about this on the last podcast we did. I think most people don't realize they probably own something to at least attempt um, handgun hunting in some form or fashion. And if they, I believe, and I've turned a few people even on on my lease onto handgun hunting. Now they haven't become obsessed with it like a lot of us have, but they still will hunt with a handgun uh, several times a year. I I, I based on my experience, I think a lot of these guys out there, especially if they're rifle hunters, if they would um, if they would just try handgunning handgun hunting. Uh, a time or two and get an animal under their belt, I think so many more would be turned on to the sport. Yeah, I, I I completely agree with you. And to back up what you said, I did a survey of a bunch of handgun hunters, several hundred, and the number one reason that people said they wanted that they were handgun hunters is because of the challenge. Yeah. Yep. And and it's such a and and then but to, to you know to kind of tie in what you said. You know, when you take that first animal, especially for me personally, when I take an animal, an edible animal, not just, you know, a varmint that I'm, you know, that's uh, a nuisance animal or something. But when I take something that I can actually feed my family with, uh, that's such a huge accomplishment. And to me, it just kind of puts it, it brings it full circle. And uh, it's a huge challenge. It's fun. It's exciting. It's, you know, it's difficult. Uh, and yet you're still you know, potentially uh, accomplishing the same results, and that's filling the freezer. Uh, amen. And I know I want to talk about that in just a little bit because I know we're both kind of definitely into the food side of it. One of the things that, though, I have talked to people that has always been amazing to me that I still I, I share is, for instance, um, the last podcast I I just released with Dick Thompson, He's he is in his 70s. And he told me that today his handgun kills still get him juiced up, like real excited. And to find something and he to find something that you do for over 50 years that still brings that kind of excitement into your life when you're successful at it. I mean, that is that's worth the price of admission right there. It's just such a, a cool prospect to be able to look forward to that. One hundred percent agree. And, um, you know, we've got guys on our lease. In fact, uh, last week um, I was out at my lease and one of my lease mates had brought a friend down and he wasn't hunting that here because he couldn't. But he uh, was he was a hunter and he just kept talking. Well, you know, and I hear this so much. I'm just at 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 our stage in life. I'm just not that mad at him anymore. And I I'm not mad at deer, but I still. I still go out and, and attempt to fill all my tags every single year, um, not just because I I enjoy the kill, but I do love pulling the trigger. Don't get me wrong, uh, but it is still such a huge thrill to me. And there's always there's always families um, that are willing to take the meat. So I I I agree with Dick, and and that's encouraging to hear that at at uh, seventy he is still. He still gets fired up about it because um, after about 25 years, I just, you know, I'm 50 now. I, I still, um, it hasn't le- lost any of its luster for me. And uh, and I, like I said, we can kill five deer in Texas. And, and I I try every year to fill all my tags and they're always with, with a handgun. Yeah, same. And 
you're absolutely right about like the being able to bless your family with this meat that you got from the wild. I don't, we don't buy, we we don't buy beef anymore in my house. We just subsist on, on deer meat. And, um, yeah, as my kids are getting up to the age where my daughter killed her first deer this year and my son and I are going in a couple of weeks and, uh, my littlest is five, but, and she was with me for the first time this year when I killed a deer and, and then she was with me and she keeps calling it her deer. Cause we, we made jerky and she, and we were sharing jerky with everybody. And she's always asking me, is that my deer? Is that, are you sharing? Is that from my deer? (laughs) That's awesome. She's a great story. I love it. She's into it. Yeah. Well, I also like, you know, this is something that I say again, I harp time and time again on this. And, uh, I, I feel like you're right. People have something that they could use, find a way to hunt with what you have. But one of the things that I run into, you know, for instance, um, I live not too far from where you live, but I, I, and I have access to land to hunt on, but only through a private relationship with a very old dear friend. And I don't really have a place where I can take people. I don't even have a place where I can take people shooting, you know, just anybody listening, Google land prices, house prices in Gillespie County, Texas, and you'll know what I'm talking about, why there isn't a shooting range here because it's used up for other purposes. But anyway, I, so I'm, I'm always struggling with the access issue, right? Like the people come up to me, want to get into it. And I don't have a way to like necessarily take them under my wing unless they already have a place to shoot and hunt. So moving forward, what do you think the answer is going to be? I mean, this is a broader hunting access question anyway, that a lot of people are talking about, but I think it's going to, I think it's, you know, essential for those of us who are kind of evangelists for the sport to be able to proselytize. Now you have a lease that you, you know, you generously have brought me and some other guys out to, and I know you, you have a way to introduce people through that. But as far as, you know, people in my shoes listening, what, just your thoughts on, on how to creatively end run some of these access issues that we have. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the million dollar question. I, you know, I don't want to get too deep into this uh, on, on what has, what has caused it, but unfortunately, and, and again, you know, most of my hunting and most of my experience have been in Texas, but in Texas, because it is like 97 or 98% privately owned. And because of, um, I would say if some of the ways that the hunting industry has gone in Texas it's become, I, I hate the term rich man sport, but it has become, it is quickly becoming that um, simply because there's not enough. I feel like there's not enough public land in Texas. And secondly, um, because of some other um, things that have become, they're useful tools, but they've also jacked the prices up on land access and, and what it takes to, to uh, not just buy land, but even lease. Um, we've, we've, um, some guys, Al, my lease and I, we've been kicking around the idea of what, you know, what is the, what is the future once we lose this, eventually we're going to lose this place. And with the land prices and lease prices, um, what are we going to do? And, and I, you know, I don't know what the answer is. We've talked about even trying to find a decent uh, piece of land and co-op together, meaning, you know, five or six of us go in together uh, with a, with a, very good set of, uh, I guess, rules or agreements, and then go in together and buy the land uh, ourselves, so that you're not you're not trying to buy a thousand acres alone or put a down payment on or what would be required on a down payment for something like that. 
but then you still get to enjoy um, having land of your own to, to hunt on, to share with friends, bring family out there, um, and, uh, you know, just enjoy the creation. Yeah, exactly. Have you ever hunted on public land in Texas? I'd have. When I was in college, uh, I went to Texas A&M, and so we were relatively, and we, and uh, my wife and I, we did, we lived in Houston for a while. Um, so we were relatively close to, you know, East Texas, which is where the majority of our public land is. And so when I was in college, I spent a lot of time roaming uh, the Sam Houston National Forest and Davy Crockett National Forest out there in East Texas. The same thing when we, when we lived in Houston. Um, that was almost exclusive. That was back when I was almost uh, like an exclusive bow hunter and managed to, to kill a few pigs out there and a, and a couple of deer. But um, that was, I mean, you know, if I'm not mistaken, the, the Sam Houston is like like 160,000 acres. And back then, a public hunting permit was 35 bucks. I'm sure it's gone up from from that now, but it's still if you have access to public land, that's, you know, it's still the best deal going to just get yourself outdoors and uh, to be able to go experience it. Yeah, I, I have never, but I am continually researching how that would work. You know, we were, we've done, we've had some contact with the parks and wildlife, et cetera. And, you know, people always say, yeah, Texas is X percent private, which is true. And it's a shame some, in, in some respects. In other respects, it's not a shame, but we won't go down that road. But that also means, right, like two or three million acres of Texas is, is, is public. However, what people don't recognize with that is if you go through the Parks and Wildlife Public Land, you know, WMAs or whatever they have, so much of that, I would say a large percentage of it is either restricted to bow hunting or bird hunting. Yep, I've seen that as well. And I get it, you know, there's a, there's a 120 acre WMA close to where I live, 25 miles away, but it's really close to a populated area. So I understand why they only have bow hunting there. Uh, and so I'm always just asking fellow Texans about what their experience is. Cause you know, there is some up North in the panhandle and out West, uh, towards the big bend area, there's some public land, but you know, is the juice worth the squeeze? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, if you don't live close enough to be able to invest time to go out and scout right. and really spend some serious time, it, it you're right. It becomes a um, you know, risk-reward type conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully, hopefully as our group grows and more people weigh in on this, we'll find more ways. I, I don't know. I haven't told you this, but I've had more people coming out of the woodwork saying, hey, if you're ever in my neck of the woods, come hunt with me. Or, hey, I have a, a place that I'm going to try and put together. You're one of them. You know, I have a place. We'll have a few people out to hunt. So, yeah, another HHI member put together something that we're going on in a couple of weeks up in uh, north central Texas. So I'm, I'm hopeful that more people coming out of the woodwork and having this kind of network will uh, be something that definitely we as uh, handgun hunters and specifically HHI members can take advantage of. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Agree. Okay. So talking about moving on to you, you are the proprietor, which is uh, a fancy word of saying you do everything from pull the stitches to sweep the floors of backcountry leather goods. And I have two of your holsters and I absolutely love them. I um, just, I, I tell people about them all I, all I can for two reasons. One, they're fantastic. Two, I'm such a fanatic about the trades. I've always been 
wanting to support people who are trying to either preserve or make a living at or do a good job in the trades. And you're definitely one of those people. Tell me, how did you get into leather work? Okay, I, I will. First of all, I appreciate the compliment. That that uh, that really means a lot to me. Um, here, when I was uh, very young, my dad, when he was growing up, he was a hobbyist uh, leather crafter, and he bought me an entry level kit. Um, I, I was probably in about ten years old, and we did a wallet together. Now, that was when I was about ten, and like most ten year olds, I you know I didn't have much of an attention span, so I didn't really have much interest of it in it when I was young. However, as I got older and, um, and really it, it, where I really started um, doing more for myself is when I became a traditional archer. And that's when I started making my own back quivers and arm guards and, and things like that. And, and similar to where, where the way the holster business or, or the other side of this has taken off uh you know i had a few friends that would see it and they would they would like what i would do and i would make them for them um but then when i got into handgun hunting 20 something years ago now that first one was an encore and i think i carried it in a sling but when a few years after that when i bought my first revolver as probably everybody listening knows there's the the possibilities are endless between the handgun you choose and um sites or no sites and red dot versus scope and different types of scope and mounts and i mean it's just there's you can't just walk into any sporting goods store and say i have this gun with this optic and i need a, a holster for it that literally just does not exist and so um similar to what i was doing when i was um, um, a traditional archer i started making holsters for myself um, that fit the specific gun and optic that I was that I was hunting with at the time, and and that was enough for me. Quite honestly, that was twenty something years ago. Um, and then, like a lot of businesses, somebody would see one, see something I was doing, and they said, "Hey, would you make one for me?" And I was like, "Sure." So that continued uh, for years and years, and then it just started kind of snowballing to the point where um, some people were saying, "I think you need to, I think you need to pursue this a little more." And then, um, like I said, about four or five years ago, when me and another HHI member, Andy um, Nichols, my uh, elk hunting partner, we started going out west. Um, I still was I was making a lot of holsters, and then and I even did I still do for people, um, you know, rifle slings and butt cuffs for for the lever action crowd as well. But for me, I was you know making holsters and and um, belt slides and things like this and uh, still hadn't really opened it up as a side business, if you will. And then it was those hunts out West where I really, everything kind of solidified for me. And it's actually where I got, was inspired by the name Backcountry Leather Goods because our very first hunt together, we did a uh, drop camp that was 10 miles deep in the Gila in New Mexico off horseback. And <clears throat> It was at that point that I was like, okay, I want to do this. I want my I want my items to look good, but more than anything, I want to know when I go 10 miles deep, I'm not going to have to worry about it. And so that has kind of driven me um, this in, you know this entire time, and that's where the name was born. Backcountry leather goods is born for me walking around chasing elk in the in the Gila National or yeah the Gila uh, in New Mexico four or five years ago. Interesting. I, you know, I would say that my, my favorite thing about backcountry 
leather goods is how you see everything you do seems to be the solution to a problem and not like a, Oh my gosh, we have a problem here, but you're, you're thinking, like you said, I want to know that it's going to last. Uh, you know, your, your chest rig was an answer to, you know, a, a, a hole you saw in the market of, of things that didn't work exactly like you wanted to your, um, Texas sidekick, another, another answer to something you were thinking, you know, it would be nice if, if holsters could do X, Y, Z. So what, uh, what is your kind of process for coming up with new designs? Um, oh, I can speak for days on this. I, uh, it's funny because Trapper was just here a few days ago and, um, he was, he had his wife with him and, and I wanted to dig out, uh, my personal chest rig and I dumped a canvas bag onto my leather, uh, table and it just, I mean, it was a pile of uh various holsters and belt slides and i mean you name it it just was and that was all from this season and so what what happens is i spend all my time at least whether it's hunting season or not i'm constantly testing out new things i'm altering holsters all the time and it's usually through that that new ideas come up either i'm Either I'm perfecting one and an idea for something else comes up, or I'm just, you know, I'm just constantly trying to make something better. Texas better. The Texas Sidekick is a great example of that. I'm still working on that one. Um, I like where it's at, but I think it's, I've got another iteration of it that I've been working on all season. And uh, I'm, I'm close to getting it finalized as well, but I, I'm constantly, I mean, constantly just walking around at my lease, trying new things, trying new positions of where guns should ride, um, how, how they ride, where they ride, uh, different, you know, different types of systems. And so, and I think I get as much of a kick out of that. Just, um, I don't know if innovating is the right word, but just, uh, I think I have a, a restless dissatisfaction with, um, with what exists and always, Maybe, uh, and that may not be the best way to describe it, but always looking for ways. I'm always looking for ways to simplify what I'm carrying, simplify my product that I'm kicking out, make and, and make it better, make it easier for, for people, if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. Which brings me to a question <clears throat> that uh, I was kicking around with Heath because, you know, Heath runs a small FFL dealer gun gun shop where he does mostly online stuff, but he caters to handgun hunters. And we were talking about the modern customer, the modern, when I was in the custom gun world, I would have called him a client, but just kind of what the, one of the things that I think handgun hunting is facing is that it has basically two suppliers. It has the faceless, nameless, giant, gun companies that kind of kick out hunting guns as an afterthought. Some, some of them are great. Some of them are not so great. There are just to say, and it feels to me like sometimes they're just like, we'll just see if this sells. Um, then there's some, and of course there's exceptions to the rule. Freedom arms is always the one BFR and freedom arms are the ones that I think are the exceptions to the rule. And then there's, there are people like you and Heath and me when I was in the business who are really focused on being customer centric 
and giving the handgun hunting community what it needs through intentional innovation. Yes, you use the right word there. You definitely are innovative. You know, intentional innovation and figuring it out through relationship with clients. However, these days we're up against the, the, you know, first of all, we're up against the, the internet. The internet is a blessing and a curse. And the fact that somebody can go buy whatever supply, you know, in your case, like your competitors, whatever would be a, a leather holster, you can go buy 60, 70 bucks on the internet. You can have it in a day. And it's not the same, obviously. But where is, how is, I don't know, I'm, this is still obviously a burgeoning kind of thought in my head that I'm gathering people's inform or people's opinions on in your mind, where is the line going to be drawn? Is this something that we're always going to have to face? And, and, and eventually, you know, it's just going to be impossible for the small time guy to be successful or, or do you think there are enough people out there for whom it is important to buy from a non, you know, from somebody with a face basically? Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, I, I mean, I don't know that the I don't know the the demand. There may be some guys out there that are doing this, uh, doing what I do full time and, and doing very well. I mean, there are some heck of a great um, craftsmen out there, um, and they may be able to. They may have a enough of a customer base or following or product line to um, to be able to to make a living at it. I don't know. I don't. I can't imagine ever, it ever growing to that point. Um, I, I and I don't know that I want it to, quite honestly. Um, and I, I'm not sure if I'm going, if I'm answering your question the way you, um, what you're looking for. But I, I will tell you, me personally, I really, really love the custom side of this, and I've told several people this when they, and this is what I think makes, um, you know, small guys like Heath or or maybe even my my little business special and that is this people can call me and it literally doesn't matter what they have what combination or what they want i i can i'm going to do my best to to make it i've and i've told a lot of people this my favorite favorite calls are when people call me when someone calls me and says hey i got this crazy idea and i'm like i already love it i, I I'm, I'm in and so what i love doing is is hearing from guys that say, I got such and such handgun with this optic. I want it to ride right here on my body and I want it to do this. I, they just go through this laundry list of things that, that is the perfect rig or perfect setup for them. And then I love taking that and turning it into reality. And I, I think, so that's why I don't know that a standardized type system is ever going to be the answer in this industry because i think all of us are so different we've got so many different possibilities to to choose from and we and and everybody's different in terms of what they prefer to hunt with how they prefer how they want to hunt and and uh so i don't i don't know that the standard the standard system of holster making is ever going to be there like mm -hmm. you said other than, other than you take something um is a very very common make and model a platform of a gun and, and uh, it's something that you can find um you know made probably most likely probably made in asia uh for 60 or 70 bucks in a sporting store yeah i guess now that listening to your talk one of the biggest differences is that you don't really have aspirations of this ever you know making you rich <laughs> no no that's yeah gosh no uh and that's fine um, and, uh, if, yeah if, yeah no 
if anybody's ever figured out how to become rich as a leathersmith, I'd love to, I'd love to um, rack the brain because there's nothing I enjoy more than sitting out in my leather shop all day and, and right. working on orders. But yeah. uh, no, I see this, I see this just being a, um, a side hustle for a long time. And then hopefully when I retire, it'll, it'll be enough to keep me busy in the, during the day. Yeah. And so the, I, I love that too. When I was running my gun shop, that was my favorite thing too, is someone come in and they would say, I have this crazy idea. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons that I shut down my shop is that I wasn't getting enough people with crazy ideas. They, I, I was looking around at everything that I was doing and thinking, this is just another version of what somebody else is making for cheaper, you know? And, um, yeah. I, I could have, and I didn't shut down my shop because I wasn't doing well. I shut down my shop cause I was, I was doing, I wasn't doing what I was put on this earth to do, but the, you know, I just think about the people out there. You're right. Because in order to make like a thriving business, correct me if, if I'm wrong about this, just using your business as an example, you know, it would have to be, you would have to come up with some standard models that you then taught two or three other people how to make on a production basis. And then you would be left to run the custom shop. But man, that's a, that's a lot of time and money to get that going. It is. And there's it, a, it's it's a, a huge success. Right. And the market's a wash with that kind of thing. So one of the things that Heath and I talked about is how we shop, you know, what, what's important to us. And I'll, you know, I'll be honest with you. My, I, I am a total victim to the 21st century right now mentality. And I have ever since the 20th century, you know, I've always been like, man, I don't want to wait for that. And so if there's some, and plus I'm always on a budget, you know, I have three young kids. So if there's someplace I can get it cheaper and faster, then a lot of times I'm going to click and do it. Of course, I always try to buy from friends when I can, but it's, it's a difficult decision to make. Heath was telling me, you know, he's very much, you know, if he has somebody he can call and chew their ear off for a while, he's much more likely to buy from them. And Heath, if you're listening and I got that wrong, I'm sorry, but you know, the two type of people that I'm talking about. So yep. I, I'm just curious because I know through what I've heard from industry folks that handgun hunters are actually of all the subsets of the hunting sports, handgun hunters are the most likely to actually spend money on things that they ask for people to make, but it's difficult. Uh, it's difficult when you know, you like, let's just take the XP 100, for example, you know, the modern version of the XP 100 is that Nosler independence pistol, and you can't find one for what, 16, 1800 bucks. And so how many people are getting priced out of that? I guess I'm just, I'm, I guess I'm rambling, but my question is more about where do you see the future of the industry and what kind of customer is the handgun hunter? Well, I, I think, uh, I mean, I, you're right about the, um, like the SP side and, and the, the Nas are great guns, by the way, but uh, they are pretty expensive. Um, I, I think the history, I mean, I think the future, and if you look at everything that's gone on just in, um, you know, in America the past few years, I think everybody uh, for the most part is, is much more budget conscience, uh, conscious. So I think, um, I think if, I think what, well, I don't know if this is the future, but I think what we need is very, very solid, entry-level platforms and entry-level can mean a lot of different things because you can buy an entry-level Ruger uh, for maybe a thousand bucks, maybe a little bit less, and that may still price some people out. But um, I think having a very solid entry-level platform that's going to cover, you know, 90% of the needs of, of people out there or is what is needed. And Ruger, maybe, maybe they 
fit the bill as is i don't know i mean i but if we ever lose the quality side of it it's everything is a price value proposition and um but i i think that's the side of the market that we can't ignore is the entry level market that's a good that's a good point uh and i there are a lot of uh, good options out there however a new ruger redhawk the dealer price is about a thousand bucks so even that is getting away from us. So I, 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 yeah. I, I just think, I don't know. I think it's going to take someone who, like SSK, I've, I foresee them doing good things, especially with Brian Alberts as their general manager, because he's committed to the product, you know, and he's not, he's not making decisions from a spreadsheet. He's, he's trying to develop real world things. More people like that, the BFR, uh, the people at BFR and Freedom, but yeah, you're right. Entry level stuff, but entry level, it's hard to get entry level for three figures now. No, and I, I, I you're 100 percent correct, and and I think you know you mentioned the BFR. I think to me that's that's about the best bang for the buck for someone coming coming into the sport. You can still buy a BFR for less than you know if it's like a 44 Magnot, some rare caliber. Right. Um, probably less than about 1500 what i love about it is i mean it is a big gun but they are well made they're very accurate and it comes and i think this is one of the biggest misses of ruger today is um and, and it's what uh, magnum research includes with theirs and that's a scope a scope base mm-hmm. um, that you can mount a scope on you can mount a red dot on and it comes with multiple uh, attach points to the to the frame and 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 i know that the i know ruger has the hunter model but that is not even close to the same thing right but i think that's a huge i i personally think that's one huge miss of ruger today is not offering a single action uh handgun with um, a scope base included that has multiple attach points something that you don't have to send off to a gunsmith to have the frame drilled and tapped to have a second or third attach point to it right and that's a that's one of the things that that brings to mind is, you know, you talk about BFR, that that shop is dedicated to putting out those revolvers. That is what they do. Ruger, I mean, God bless them. I, they make great guns. I carry a Ruger. I hunt with a Ruger. I I love them. Uh, but their like their revol- hunting revolver segment is such a small portion of what they're putting out uh, on whole. So I I think pr- one of the things that they lack is somebody with vision in that department to maybe lead it forward because you know they still have enough reputation that if their quality is even similar to what it has been that they'll they'll be able to dominate the market totally agree yeah well that's yeah i know that philosophizing about that i always want to get everybody else's <laughs> opinion especially people with more experience than me uh but i want to i want to move on to our last topic and then close us out here in a minute you and i both love the food aspect of hunting. Um, when I was fortunate enough to share camp with you last spring, you were the camp cook, which our meals were awesome, by the way. Uh, you got to send me that monkey bread recipe because I want to make it for my family. <laughs> but okay. um, so I, I'd like to say, I'd like to talk to you like, and I know we've talked about this offline, but tell me some of your favorite game preparations. And here's the thing. If someone comes to you and says, "Oh, I don't like deer meat. It's too gamey." You know, what's your what's your answer to that and what are you going to feed them to prove otherwise? 
Okay, so um, first of all, I hate, I absolutely loathe the term gamey. I don't, I don't even recognize that in my vocabulary. Oh, oh. Dear. let me just stop you right there because that is one of my soapboxes because I, you know, nobody eats a, a, a steak and says, oh my gosh, that's too beefy. Or they go to uh, Chicken Express and say, oh my gosh, that's too chickeny. It's, it, you know, I don't know what the word gamey means. It just means... This meat tastes like it was what it's supposed to be, but yes, I agree with you. I'm sorry you fired me up, but yeah. yes, I'm with you. No, no, yeah, no, you're right. It's it's a wild animal. That's what it is, and you're right. People get so used to beef that anything outside of that, they they it gets classified. And I, like I said, I, I absolutely loathe that term, but it's been kicked around so much that it's become almost standard for for non wild game eaters or or at least not non hunters. If I was going to, if someone came to me and said it's too gamey and they were still standing after they made that comment in front of me, I would, and I, and I had the opportunity <laughs> and I had the opportunity to cook for them. I would go to the most standby easy meal, um, that I know that everybody loves. And I, I'm, I'm willing to throw down and we can have a cook off sometime, but I'm willing to bet that my, oh, and I'm like you, I, we live off of um, venison year round. We don't, unless we want a ribeye, we do not buy beef in this house. We never have. And I process my own animals. I just, I get a kick of the whole field to, to freezer thing, knowing everything is done by myself. Yes, by, sir. By me. But I would put my burger my venison burger up against anybody and anybody's and i know that's a bold statement but i will tell you if i had someone today that said no i won't eat deer or or said okay i'll try it but i think it's going to be too gamey uh i would make them a hamburger and i could i could turn most people around on Mm. thinking about it that's my opinion and that's not that's not my person i mean i love burgers don't get me wrong but if i'm cooking something for myself i'm going to probably lean towards the tenderloin or a backstrap Mm -hmm. preparation but um how do you i mean who in this country doesn't love a good burger and if you can make a good burger out of venison i think you can convince a lot of people so do you uh when you process do you mix your grind with with pork i do i mix it with beef tallow uh typically about 15% 15% beef tallow. I've never done the, the pork. I've heard mixed reviews on that. Um, but I mix my my burger and my pan sausage with uh, a little bit of beef tallow or beef fat. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, that's even debatable. A lot of people say that you don't need it. And that's fine if that's your preference. I personally enjoy a little fat in mine. Um, and, and so that's what I've always done. And um, we enjoy it here, like I said. Yeah, I um, we've always just ground straight like no no other additives i did start adding some of the organs uh for the for the mineral content for my kids it's the only way to get them to eat it the um you know i don't know if i recommend that for everybody but we enjoy it but um Mm -hmm. yeah and beef fat is highly underrated beef fat is so much better than pig fat um yeah not that i don't like pig fat fat i mean if anybody sees me they'll know that i definitely like eating fat the uh but (laughs) That's in, nobody has. I don't know if anyone's ever heard have said burgers to that question before. You know, for me, it would always be you know chicken fried backstrap with white gravy. Yeah, that's no, the, that's a you know what? That's a great that's a great choice too because that's a 
But and and here's the thing I think and I I gosh chicken fried backstrapped it's fair right you know like like you said is is hard to beat. But I mean uh, and I'm not knocking your choice, but I mean you can deep fry boot leather and make it taste taste pretty good. And so I, if I want them to if I want them to really taste venison, I uh, I think I would. I would throw one of my burgers on the grill for a few minutes and and uh, let them truly taste the meat and understand that it is in fact not gamey. Well, hey, I respect your choice, but it's I'm not really I'm not really qualified to answer this question because, like you, I get frustrated at the term gamey. I love foods. I love weird foods. I I was not born with that thing in my brain that says it looks or smells a certain way, so don't put it in your mouth. I was just like, if it's if it's eaten somewhere in the world, I want to figure out how to try it. And so I'm not I'm never the I'm never the one, you know. And then I'll always get mad when someone's like, no, it was still gamey, and I'm like, I, I can't taste that at all. And uh, so anyway, well then the opposite question. What if you're cooking for someone like me? What's going to be like your favorite? You don't have to worry about if people are going to like it, but just straight up favorite way to cook uh, game meat. Oh, man. Uh, probably, well, I probably wouldn't, I, it probably wouldn't be tenderloin because I doubt I would share those with you. So I'd probably, I'd probably <laughs> go to uh, a backstrap. And I've got a pretty good backstrap recipe, I feel like. And it's, it's something that everybody does. But, um, I do believe in tenderizing it a little bit with a hammer or uh, some sort of uh, tenderizing tool and uh, rub it down with a little olive oil, season it up with however you like, um, throw a little cheese in there. Uh, it could be cream cheese. I personally like um, either, I like using cream cheese and you can buy the kind that's pre-mixed with like pineapple or jalapeno or something like that. Mm-hmm. And to me that, uh, especially with the pineapple, having a little bit of sweet in there, I think is a good offset. Uh, roll it up with some bacon and, and, um, you know, I've done it both ways. I've done it two ways and I think both ways come, come out well. And, oh, and I'll say this, a lot of people say, yeah, use thick cut bacon, bacon. That is a mistake. By the time the bacon's done, the deer meat is, 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 is well done. So use thin cut bacon. And I really don't, you don't even need to eat the bacon. It's more just to hold it together and add maybe a little bit of flavor. But the two ways I've done it is I've, I've smoked it real slow till it's, you know, about one, maybe one thirty internally, or, um, I've also done it real fast, just like you would, um, almost like you would grill a burger and just keep bouncing it over uh, fire till the bacon's done. Thin cut bacon. When the bacon's done, take it off. And it's unbelievable. That thin cut bacon is a top tip for everything you wrap in bacon. I think, Yes. you know, jalapenos, whatever, because you're right. It's either raw bacon on the inside (laughs) Or everything yeah. else is too is too cooked. That's that's a, my I I am I'm simple. Like I'd just give me a steak. Like I, I don't care. Mm. Cut from the ham. Cut from the backstrap. Wherever I love I love I just love straight up steaks. And so is my daughter. But one of the ways uh, that I've been cooking it recently that I have really enjoyed is stir frying. And mm-hmm. I learned that the best way to do it. So I'll I'll slice it into, you know, quarter inch thick or less little medallions. And then I'll marinate it in soy sauce, some Chinese cooking wine, garlic, you know, one of those things where it's just like, ah, what do I feel like putting in here? But some of those more Asian things and then cook it in a really hot 
wok with nothing, no, no oil in it. And okay. if you don't crowd the pan and you get it, I mean, blazing hot and just a few seconds on each side. Oh my gosh. And then one of the things that I feel like I'm a big proponent of letting meat rest after you cook it. And so if you tent it with some tin foil for about five to 10 minutes after that, it's so good. And it's not even, it's not even necessarily has to be an Asian thing like over rice, although it is good that way, but just, just even as, um, you know, steak tips or something like that, I, that's been my favorite way most recently. And of course I couldn't not mention the, what I call the national food of Gillespie County, which is smoked dry ring sausage and being from New Braunfels, mm. you know, being in New Braunfels, another German town, I'm sure you're well familiar with that. Yeah, man, that sounds good. I tell you what, um, this spring when we do our uh, annual hog and turkey hunt, you're going to have to do that stir fry for us. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah. And you're going to have to do the burger for me because now I definitely want to try that. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm telling you, I got it. Okay. Well, we I think we're about out of time, but man, I, I, you're you're such an awesome dude and I'm really glad you're my friend. I'm really glad you're an HHI. I'm really glad that we got to connect through this. I mean, I guess we've known each other for a couple of years now, which is like time flies. Um, and I can't, I can't wait to, I guess the spring hunt will be here before we know it. And, um, we'll do this again. Sounds good. I appreciate your time, Ron. Yeah, Randy. Alrighty. I'll talk to you later. Take care. What a nice guy. Again, that's going to be my pat answer or my pat closing for every episode. What a nice guy or what a nice girl. Uh, but seriously, Randy is such a, a cool dude. He has been a good friend to me. He's been a good support. He has given me a lot of good advice about HHI and uh, over the years. And I just am such a big fan of his, if you couldn't tell. I'd like to just direct all of you to his Facebook page, Backcountry Leather Goods, where he shows a lot of his work there. You can see how accomplished a leathersmith he actually is, and he comes up with some really cool ideas. And if you can't find a holster anywhere to fit your needs, give him a call because I know he's going to want to make it for you. Anyway, okay, moving on, moving onward and upward. This podcast is going to be great this year, and I can't wait to see what else we're going to have in store for you. And I'll see you on the next episode. Good hunting. This podcast is produced by Handgun Hunters International. HHI is the only organization dedicated solely to supporting and growing the sport of handgun hunting. Membership gets you access to our great, well-moderated forum where friendly handgun hunters of all experience levels share stories and information from folks that have actual experience in our sport. We also host giveaways to our members of guns, gear, and ammo every month, and each prize is worth several times what membership costs. In addition to this podcast, we publish a free digital magazine, The Six Gunner, which is written exclusively by HHI members. If you are a handgun hunter or support handgun hunting in any way, you need to be a member of HHI. Join today at handgunhuntersinternational.com. Again, if you have any questions on how to get started in handgun hunting, please reach out to me at ryan at handgunhuntersinternational.com. If you think we deserve it, please leave us a five-star review and don't forget to follow Handgun Hunters International on social media at handgunhuntersint. God bless and good hunting. Good hunting.